Welcome to the chat room, Patricia. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today, Brian. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure from, from my side, Patricia. It really is. Um, for viewers that may not be aware of you, uh, would you mind just giving a brief description of who you are and, and how you essentially came to Japan? Sure. Um, I guess I'm one of the rare women who's working in the energy sector in Japan. There aren't really all that many of us. Um, I think there are lots of women globally, but in Japan, it's a pretty much uh, a male-dominated sector. But <laughs> I've been in Japan and kind of working in that context for over 35 years. I, I first came kind of a, an adventure many years ago. I think I read Shogun and knew nothing about Japan and had an opportunity <laughs> to come and land in, uh, in Tohoku. Actually, well, I guess Niigata technically doesn't consider itself part of Tohoku, but I lived in Niigata City for a couple of years and uh, became a Japanophile. And ironically, the rest of my adult life has centered around um, Japan and oh, been based here. But um, I, I started in the public sector here. I actually worked with Japanese government for three years, and then I went into the Canadian embassy, where I worked in public affairs, got very interested in government uh, relations, um, and uh, economic uh, relationships, obviously very, very important between Canada and Japan at that time, led me to the yeah. And that pulled me into the private sector. So I worked as a vice president in Goldman Sachs with a global role for about three years and moved into Standard Chartered Bank. So I've worked in um, investment banking sector and wholesale and resale and uh, a little bit of um, priority banking and during those years yeah. and got into government and regulatory affairs. Um, and then I, I worked with BAT, which was a very, very interesting experience for me um, during the uh, time of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. So I led mm. corporate regulatory affairs at that time and uh, was actually a member of the Tobacco Institute of Japan. I'm not pro-tobacco, actually. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Um, that experience, I got into CSR and sustainability that uh, mm. launched the first social report, which is now in, morphed into integrated reporting mm. in Japan, but it was the very first, if you can yeah. imagine, in this country. And uh, from there, I got hooked on sustainability. Um, I finished my corporate career with IBM. I was director of communications um, mm. with responsibilities and uh, started my own company, Consulting and Sustainability, about, oh gosh, a dozen years ago. Yeah. And from there, my love of sustainability and the focus on um, the topics of food, water and energy and having been exposed to clean tech and the future of mm of technology through my IBM years, um, I got involved in energy because energy is really at the heart of everything that is driving climate mitigation and really sustainability issues around the world. It's so intrinsically linked um, yeah. to food and water issues. And it's something that is uh, really, I believe, a priority sector for everyone right now. Mm. So I Currently, you know, involved in, in a number of regulatory affairs type consulting roles. Um, I work in healthcare as well, but uh, I really have a passion for energy and have been working towards the coal transition pri primarily. So I'm I'm doing some biomass development in Japan, trying right. to help that transition away from coal. Oh, fascinating! No, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, if you don't mind, why don't we just sort of go straight into that loaded question? 
again, as I sort of mentioned on my introduction, just in terms of what seems to be some very ambitious targets that the Japanese government have, uh, have laid out and come out publicly with, how is that even possible? I think that Japan has an opportunity to show great leadership in mm. this whole energy transition. First of all, they're not a producer of uh, fossil fuels. So they've got really nothing to lose as long as there are alternatives. So that's one thing. I mean, obviously they're at great risk for pricing because they're buying fossil fuels and they don't get the benefit of say the US that's a producer. And so if the prices go up, they actually mm -hmm. gain something ironically. Japan is um, in a sense vulnerable from that mm -hmm. perspective, but because they're a massive energy producer and because they have a, um, you know, a regulatory environment that if it really embraces the transition away from fossil fuels has an opportunity to really make great inroads. Mm. I think mm. that Japan has been a little bit um, hampered by the fixation on nuclear for so many decades, and that's slowed down the development in other renewable areas. But I think that there's a realization that we can't solve every problem through nuclear anymore. But still, the energy transition, the goals that you're talking about, require Japan to turn on, I think the number is 27 of their existing nuclear reactors in order to meet those targets wow. using current thinking, right? Yeah. So the only other big ticket energy play that they could supplant that idea with is hydrogen. Okay. And so you're seeing massive activity on the hydrogen and the ammonia side. And interesting, ammonia, which is obviously, you know, it's a, it's a storage um, capability mm. or hydrogen essentially, is also being seen as a solution to transition coal because right. they're looking to replace coal with using ammonia. Yeah. So yeah. seeing a lot of activity, particularly around the trading companies in Japan, about acquiring the, those partnerships and um, moving towards that hydrogen future, mm. it, mm. it is only viable alternative in the current thinking to replacing nuclear as the um, the linchpin for meeting the targets. So it's a very interesting area. Oh, now, very much so. Ishida, who is from Hiroshima, not mm. pro-nuclear. Um, and uh, I, I think that there is room right now that there perhaps has never been before for other forms of nuclear to finally get some, tra uh, other forms of renewables to get some traction in Japan. It's interesting because uh... Over the last couple of years, I've actually spent a little bit more time traveling around Japan. And on the one hand, you know, you can see all of these different sort of uh, solar panels that are across all the different uh, countryside and landscape. On the one hand, you're thinking, oh, you know, that's really sort of disturbed what would have been sort of idyllic landscape. But there is, as you've mentioned, a need and a continued need in terms of making that transformation into renewables. I did recently read a report, uh, and I think that report suggested that Japan was third globally just in terms of the production of solar. Again, for somebody like me and our viewers that may not have too much of an understanding of solar, is solar equally going to be part of that whole renewable transition? Yeah, solar has some limitations for Japan. Um, the solar insulation here is actually fairly good. So, I mean, in terms of using solar, it's uh, it's not a difficult kind of renewable to adopt. But as you say, there's a lot of um, kind of angst about having too much solar because 
it has competed with agricultural land. And you know, the agriculture lobby is very, very strong in Japan. Yeah. Local yeah. communities tend to see agricultural land or else, you know, um, deforestation as a result of solar and they don't it does disturb the the um the atmosphere you know in, in some community because it's been largely mega solar development mm. and I, I mean this i i can get very geeky on you here if uh you know i'll, I'll try to avoid well, bring it. it on bring it on we're okay <laughs> with geeky there, there is local opposition to having too much solar in, um, mm. in rural communities. And a lot of that is led by the agricultural lobby. But why hasn't there been more rooftop solar is a question. Yeah. There are actually issues with, um, you know, I, I've done due diligence on probably over 50 um, solar projects over the, over the um, years. And uh, in one part of Japan, I won't name which part, where they were in, in, sort of pursuit of disaster net preparedness measures mm. were looking at roofing on all the public buildings. After reviewing about 128 of the public buildings rooftops, only 28 of them were actually structurally sound enough to support oh rooftops. Yeah, because you know housing in Japan is a, is a very different type. Mm. Putting them on, you know, housing, you have to have structurally sound buildings. Yes. There's also an issue that Japanese buildings are not really made to last. The yes. life of the buildings is not that uh, long. And mm. for public buildings, you can put rooftop solar on if they're structurally sound. But for most privately held um, buildings, there are insurance gaps where you can't insure just the roof. And yes. if the owner changes, the owner can opt to have them removed. So applying a feed-in tariff to those kinds of situations has been a really gnarly project. Yeah, yeah. Another problem with solar in Japan, and this is speaking as some who funding for these projects many, many times, the banks look at bankability and due diligence factors that actually preclude new technologies. Because if you're using a non-established technology, no matter how well proven it is sort of scientifically or you know, through testing in other countries, unless it's had a 10 or even 20 year track record in Japan, it's not considered insurable. It's oh. risky to use new technology. So in a way, the financial system has precluded the adoption of new, techno new renewable technologies. And there's also the competitive factor where Japanese yeah take priority you know mm. um, where you want to use the Japanese panel so even if you have a much better cheaper more efficient panel from abroad there's this built-in um, sort of barrier because it's very difficult to get those projects fi financed mm. there's also an issue where new renewable companies often tend to be younger, um, newer, smaller companies. Yeah. And the banking industry doesn't really have a concept of project finance for renewables here. It's corporate finance. Unless you mm. have a balance sheet and you actually don't need the money, you're not going to get financing for a project. Mm. So all of these factors come into play to preclude newer, better solar, um, you know, technologies coming into the market in the same way that they should. It's uh, there's lots of built-in sort of barriers around that um, around that whole system of how things yeah. are done. Yeah, and again, apologies. These things. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> again. It, it, it's sort of going back to uh, 
you know, my sort of opening introduction, you know, and again, that everything what you've just uh, eloquently outlined just in terms of the challenges that Japan has in terms of making this renewable transition, you've got on that one hand, and then on the other hand, you've got this commitment, right? This commitment that's out there that the 46% reduction by 2030 in zero carbon. And I can understand, again, you know, you and I have both been here during 2011. We can both appreciate and understand the sensitivity that there is in terms of, I think you mentioned what 26 or 27 uh, nuclear plants potentially could turn on. But again, that's just dealing with the public and the public sensitivity. And, you know, again, this is just probably a loaded question. Is that likely to happen? Is that likely to be the answer to get to these ambitious targets? Yes, they are slowly being turned on. I think there are 17 that are now operational again, even as we speak. Mm. Um, and, uh, grid capacity is being reserved. Um, actually, to the detriment of renewables, um, gaining grid capacity access um, in many parts of Japan because of this plan and uh, the massaging, the incremental, you know, um, approach to turning on these, uh, these nuclear facilities again. But there is a movement towards newer, um, improved technologies and smaller um, mm. uh, you know, um, I guess in a sense, less risky uh, nuclear. Mm that aren't the big massive plants of, uh, of the past. And so that's going to be a very interesting space to watch, mm. whether the capacity mm. of nuclear is going to be taken up by these new or whether it's going to be turning on, you know, plants that you have to make a decision about decommissioning or turning them on. Mm. Um, the, um, you know, costly endeavors either direction. And it takes about 20 years to decommission a, a nuclear plant. So they're yeah. not going away. So you either yeah. use them and I guess we have to weigh the risks um, about whether it's riskier to turn on the existing capability versus the planetary risk that we're facing right now. Yes. Better yes. to meet the targets by 2050 and then transition to safer um, nuclear capabilities? Or is it better to really sit on principle and say, okay, we have to scramble and, and, and mm -hmm. focus really on the hydrogen? And we have to keep in mind that what would we replace with if it's hydrogen? Currently, unfortunately, the vast majority, I would say, um, I, I hate to throw out percentages because somebody could prove me wrong, but over half of the hydrogen that is being sort of acquired in, um, and developed in Japan is what we would call gray hydrogen, which is right. actually okay. fuels, mm. you know? It's just a matter of in the source country, like it might be Canada or Australia, they're still burning fossil fuels in order to make the, um, you know, the, the catalyst, you know, the reactions that are required yeah. in order to produce the ammonia to ship the hydrogen over to Japan. So um, it, at the end of the day, if it, we're talking about gray hydrogen, it is not really any greener than just using fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now that's very interesting. I also think as well, going back to, mm. I don't want to say the debate, but the reality around the nuclear um, stations that we have or the nuclear plant, shall I say, that we have, I don't think many people have actually appreciated your comment in terms of saying, well, look, you know, you can't just turn these things on and off, right? To create a new nuclear plant, 
of the size and capacity that we have, say, in Japan or around the world, you know, these things are multi-year projects. And equally as well that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussions around these small modular reactors that they've been, but again, they just take time. These things are not imminent right now. It's a, it's an interesting point that you made earlier about the, uh, I don't want to say the, the lack of ability, but when you mentioned about project financing, and I did read up uh, quite recently, and I was actually surprised that there's a Japanese government-backed dollar-denominated five-year bond that got issued a couple of months ago. I think the size of that, sorry, I'm going to have to look away in terms of, uh, um, I don't have it to hand, but I think maybe it was about $500 million or something like that that was paying a coupon. So I don't know whether to some degree that this is a token gesture to say, hey, you know, we are trying to raise more money for these renewable projects or or whether it's going to be something to say, right, okay, this is a five-year bond. We see how we go with this one and we're going to start increasing more of these. Um, you touched on around project financing. I'd love to hear some more views on that from you. Yeah, I, I don't think that it's an empty gesture. Um, and in all fairness to Japan, I think that there are truly um, yeah. passionate people involved in, in these kinds of debates. Um, and who are, are truly looking for the solutions. And yes. there is a clear recognition that financial solutions have to be um, a part of the picture. And Japan has actually signed on to the CCFB, Task Force on Climate Financial Disclosures. Mm. Uh, I think in July 2021, that was started by um, Mark Carney, who mm. is the governor of the Bank of England and has now been taken over by Michael Bloomberg. But Japan is one of the very, very critical signatories of the TCFB. And I think that we're seeing an adoption of those measures and metrics. Um, the goal right. is to every large corporation, and particularly with a focus on trading companies and financial institutions, hmm. looking at where in their supply chains and investment strategies are they contributing to the problem and where can they contribute to the solution? Hmm of not only carbon emissions, but climate uh, mitigation across the board. And it's a really good approach for Japan because it's about risk mitigation. Yeah. It makes corporations and financial institutions really assess it, um, using very, very clear tools from an, an ex, um, a unique approach for each industry and each, mm. uh, you know, each of the driving forces behind them mm. about Exactly where their impact is and where their risk lies. Yeah, yeah. If you look at financial institutions and also insurance companies and the you know the providers of bonds, like you um, you've mentioned, the, the investors into those kinds of bonds, they're hugely at risk because of climate disasters. Yes. And uh, you know insurance uh, um, liabilities, and so it's a really good approach, I think, for Japan to be taking, and it mm. involves. The stock exchange, the stock market, the financial institutions, I think that there hasn't been nearly enough traction yet. Mm -hmm. but I mentioned to you, I think, earlier that I was involved with sustainability and with the, um, the publishing of social reports that have now morphed into integrated reporting. And 95% of Japanese uh, KDAN members are now issuing inter integrated reports. So oh, this is, this yeah. is, it has gained so much traction in the past, past 10 years. 
10 years ago, there were none. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they're at 95% issuing integrated reports that do factor in the climate risk and the mitigations. And I believe that there is a possibility of those KDAMN members coming onto the TCFB uh, metrics which are basically a step beyond the GRI metrics that they're currently using for their integrated okay. and creating it a, um, a much more robust financial and investment discussion around climate mitigation. That's so very I, interesting, yeah. I think this is something that, um, you know, I applaud Japan for being a, a relatively early signatory. Um, very few countries came on quickly. It was started five years ago, but Japan joined on now two years ago, right, in 2021. And um, I, I do believe that Japan doesn't take on these things lightly. Once it's uh, the intention to integrate this gets rooted, uh, we're going to see more and more traction. It's I'm very also, difficult to, uh, for them to step back once they've had that commitment, right? Exactly. And I'm also encouraged by, if you look across the, um, you just look on the websites of every major corporation and financial institution in Japan, you'll see commitments to the SDGs. And these are not lately, it's actually a large investment being made into the identified SDGs, um, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, for those of you who don't know the acronym. Um, and those have teeth, you know, they, they are really focused on issues like um, plastics reductions. Uh, there is regulation now being driven because of that. You know, life below mm. water is an SDG. Energy, mm. you know, cheap and affordable energy for all has now also taken on great ramifications for the climate mitigation um, measures that need to be taken. So mm. I do believe that from the corporate side, as well as from the financial institution side and the investor decision-making processes, there are very positive influences at play in Japan that will help to meet some of those goals. Again, that's that's very, very interesting for me. I'm sure the viewers as well. I just wonder that, and again, these are only things that I've heard, Patricia, so I'm not speaking about stuff that I, uh, I know too much about. But uh, I understood that to transition from coal into oil, that was going back to the 1950s and that was over, let's just say that sort of 15 to 20 year period of that transition. And oil obviously being a very large percentile of Japan's uh, prime energies that they do import. And you've got this sort of, I don't want to use the word monopoly, but you've kind of got this monopoly going on with the trading companies, right? So it's really not in the trading company's best interest at this moment in time for them to say, hey, by the way, we're going to spend X amount of money to transition into renewables, where one could argue that they're sitting on quite a lucrative and profitable business right now. So if you don't mind, again, what would be your opinion really for the trading companies? What's going to essentially push them to be more active maybe they're already active but not so much that we're seeing that but what's going to really sort of push them into really having a sort of framework set out for the future for them to adopt the renewable space yeah well that's a really difficult uh, question um and the trading companies are in a typical position mm. uh, but you know that japan is based on kind of a kinetsu model 
So they're, you know, the, 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 the trading companies are attached to whole, um, you know, stakeholder chains. And so there's a lot of pressure on them to um, transition in order to meet goals as well from not only the government and the, the policies that are coming forward and the right new regulations, but also from their own families, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, so we, reputation matters in Japan. And um, I think that that is one of the drivers. But of course, the bottom line of it is that um, Japan is very dependent on imported energy. There's no way around that. So mm. it's nuclear or it's importing something. And the trading companies have made a huge investment in finding those resources globally around the world. And in, in a sense, have done a great service to Japan. Um, the sourcing of L LPG gas, the quick turnaround after the disaster in 2011. Mm. I mean, if you, you think about the agility of the trading companies to keep up yeah. with, the, yeah. with those demands, it's, it's been really quite uh, remarkable in some oh. ways. Now with the Russian invasion of, of, um, of Ukraine as well, the large amount of LPG gas that's coming from the Sakhalin Islands, for instance, these oh. are all linked to reputation issues. And um, it's going to take a lot of public pressure and also government pressure in order to cut off those kinds of supplies for moral mm. reasons, because Japan is not traditionally governed by the moral reasons unless there's a reputation backlash. Yeah, yeah. And we've seen yeah. that, you know, um, I, I, I can give you lots of examples, but, you know, it's a much longer conversation. That said, I think they are very vulnerable or sensitive, not vulnerable, sensitive to reputation backlash. Japan wants to be seen as a leader. And you're seeing... Um, a huge uh, force amongst the trading companies of this shift to hydrogen. And so the, the partnerships that are being formed with um, hydrogen producing, ammonia producing um, countries is now gaining momentum. They're also, of course, um, shoring up partnerships with the Middle East and other supplies outside of Russia. You're seeing all of these activities going on, um, no. but you're, not, you're also seeing curtailment of coal. Um, the oil transition, you know, transitioning coal from oil was a lot of it was um, actually palm kernel oil coming out of coconut plantations out of the, the out of um, Southeast Asia. But now you're seeing that a lot of those oil transition um, coal uh, plants are being sort of scuppered. And they're yes. now replacing that with ammonia as a more acceptable and less reputation laden issue. And it's also layered on to Japan's uh, announcement at COP26 that it would be committed to um, ending deforestation. And PKS, palm kernel shells, which is a major biomass source out of Southeast Asia, is also the root of coconut palm plantations are um, you know, the, the fourth largest cause of deforestation on the planet. Mm. And so moving away from PKS and palm kernel oil is actually a major step towards ending deforestation. So all of these things are linked up and the trade yeah. comes right at the heart of it. So when you see a transition away from PKS and palm kernel oil, you're, you're seeing a palm oil, sorry, um, for coal transition. When you see the partnerships being formed around um, blue and hopefully green hydrogen, it yeah. is the companies that are at the heart of those discussions that's very interesting so it's to slam them but it's also very encouraging to see the activity that is going on in that world um and so that's you know one hope for me 
is that I do believe that um, the trading companies are transitioning along with whatever regulations are required, but also in order to um, appease their own stakeholders, which you know are very powerful in Japan. Kedamren will be playing a big role in this. As I say, really, I mean, it's 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 a fascinating conversation when you think about, you know, the start of my introduction, the statement that's out there. And you've highlighted some excellent points, just which one, certainly from my perspective, it gives me comfort that actually, you know, what seemed to be quite unrealistic, ambitious goals, all of that at the start is that actually, this is going to be this is going to be possible because once Japan has signed up for something, they will see it through. Now, how they see it through, and what third I was going to say third party, but let's just say third countries' roles go into that. I guess that we'll find that out over the next uh, you know eight years in terms of the next hurdle rate of twenty thirty. But no, it's been a truly fascinating discussion, Patricia. Um, would is there anything you feel that for our viewers that uh, there'll be any other points that you think you'd like to make reference to? I think that we haven't talked about carbon capture and storage. Mm. And right now, the latest IPCC report is saying that we're going to not we're going to have to not only transition um, on the energy front, we're going to have to capture carbon. And I do think that Japan could play a big role in that. Um, I think that they, there are uh, marine resources, algae methodologies, carbon capture, working um, with their blue hydrogen on the, um, you know, the carbon capture and storage technologies um, is, is something that Japan could play a bigger role in than they've been thinking about to date. Um, I think that Japan's biggest obstacle is that they are not nurturing innovators in the mm. renewable space in the same way that they're nurturing the um, digital entrepreneurs. Almost yeah. all of the venture capital is going to digital. I mean, how many more online payment systems do we yeah. have? Yeah. We're facing planetary crisis in this area. Japan mm. needs to focus its venture capital world on solving the planetary issues mm. instead and wean itself off of this Silicon Valley venture capital focus on big win, growth, quick exit which is where almost all of the money is being drained right now for innovation, yeah. which yeah. I find to be close to a crime. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I guess so the, the, uh, the digital is sort of in vogue at the moment, isn't it, right? We can't afford in vogue at the yeah. moment. We have yeah. to be supporting the new technologies and not only that, but making it possible for smaller, more agile companies, <clears throat> excuse me, to get into the carbon capture, the small energy, the community-based, um, that mm. also will contribute to community development and create jobs and, and to help with aging society issues, you know, in yeah. rural parts of Japan. But that point is at this moment being largely missed by the policymakers in Japan. Mm. And I that's one area that needs to be really, really explored and discussed more. I'd love the opportunity, you know, hopefully we can have another sort of chat room session that we can delve more into the carbon credits at another time, because uh, again, I'm sure that is to me a very fascinating topic. It really is. Patricia, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me on the chat room today. It's been a truly fascinating discussion for our viewers that want to 
get in contact with you or want to you know, understand a lot more from you just in regards to their transition, how would they be able to get in contact with you? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn and um, I think I'm, uh, I'm relatively accessible. My company is called Silver Birch Associates. Yeah. And uh, so if you just Google Silver Birch um, Asia, uh, then my contact details are there. And I'd be very happy to hear from anyone who wants to talk about energy. Food, water and energy are really my passion areas. And uh, I'm very happy if I can do anything to drive the discussion. Well, Patricia, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate the opportunity.